Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So we've convinced Eric to stay for a little longer to talk some Alt-Ac. Alt-Ac! Alt-Ac, when you say it, you can say it like Aflac commercials. Aflac. Okay. (laughs) So we have Eric here to talk about his higher education journey. Um, all, all good things. Eric was my first PhD student, ah, so it's it's a big exciting. claim to fame, Eric. I don't know. You're Ugh. my you claim to fame, or I'm, I'm your <laughs> claim to say. fame. I don't know. We'll we'll see who ends up with more fame. But um, I think we already know who it is. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I'm but you on were, your podcast after all. But you were a great student. Your podcast has oh, more thank views. You. Your your podcast was was something. Yeah. It, was, it was around a while longer. I got a head start, but thank you. It yeah. was a good podcast. Well, first, can you maybe give us a quick recap of like your educational story, undergrad, master's, PhD? Sure. And then we'll end at the PhD part, and then we'll we'll pick up with another question. Sure, I'll do I'll do my best. Yeah. Uh, so I started at UCLA as an undergrad in 2000. And you were a transfer student from a community college. I was a transfer student. Which is awesome. That's cool. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I had taken a year off in between and then went to a community college. And Did you grow up locally around here? I grew up in Redondo Beach. Okay. And the closest community college to me would have been El Camino. Uh, but I did my research even back then. Santa Monica College, uh, And baby. I said Santa Monica has the mm-hmm. best uh, transfer rates anywhere. Uh, okay. So I commuted for two, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. I did Santa my Monica stuff. College. Mm-hmm. And I worked you. full-time in the meantime. Um, and then, yeah, I eventually transferred. So I only applied to UCs, and I got into all of them except Berkeley. You got into everyone you applied to except Berkeley. I got into everyone, and I didn't know what this means now. I was actually offered a region scholarship to Davis. Oh. oh, it would have paid for the whole thing. The whole thing for two years. And I had a very good scholarship from UCLA for undergrad, too. That's good. Um, and I talked to... Because you're a first-generation college student. That was not as much of a thing, believe it or not. Really? Then. It's yes. a huge thing now. So you're at UCLA taking classes. I'm at UCLA taking classes. I'm a history major. Um, I was one of those people who never changed majors. So my original goal was to teach high school history. Okay. And then I got to UCLA, and I had some great professors. Um, Kara was one of them, who was there on a postdoc. Yeah. Um, and I had another it was professor. It a one-year So you always were into ancient history. I was into ancient history, and I was actually also into Cold War studies. Okay. So Professor Friedlander, uh, Saul Friedlander, uh, who's a very actually prominent professor in our history department who did Cold War studies. Cool. I did graduate some graduate seminars with him, and I also did some graduate seminars with Kara, uh, and then with uh, Vilika one mm-hmm. of our other Egyptologists at UCLA, and then Yako, who's no longer there. Yeah. Um, this is Vilika Ventrich and Yako yeah. Um And I should have originally, I, I could have graduated in 2003, uh, but I actually stayed on and did an extra year, which is pretty much all graduate work. Cool. Uh, so I did field work. And you I would have excavated. gotten a master's if, now. You would have yeah. gotten a departmental so, fellowship. So this, these are the things. You could do that now. Maybe departmental the, These are the things yeah. that um, me coming in when I did, we were a very young program. Undergrad, taking a bunch of classes. Uh, the debate is between graduate school and either Cold War studies or Egyptology. 
I wasn't quite it's a, sure. It's a crazy thing to yeah, choose between. It is. And yet not. I mean, many of them are the same, right? I was very into, it was... Uh, it, it Big was, mono, monoliths of the ruler, the, the supreme ruler, mm-hmm. in one way or another. All about Stalinism. Yeah. We can talk yeah. about that if we want yeah. on this yeah. podcast. Um, but I was into that, and I, I needed that extra year to figure it out. So I did some grad classes, and that's I decided, oh, I want to do Egyptology. Mm-hmm. Um, so applied to programs, and it was between Chicago and UCLA. Did they pay for you at Chicago? They offered me some money, but not a full ride. Yeah. So I was told to go to Chicago. Yeah. By whom? Not me. I would uh, never. You no. Tiny thing. Um, so, so you weren't there. Yeah, you were away. I was, I was you in, were in Siberia. So, so, so Vilica was, Vilica was on the side of you oh, can gosh, stay God. or should stay. And Yaka was on the side of you should go to Chicago. Well, it's a philologist. A, it's a philologist and yes. it's a better program. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it also at that point but they were its giving you funding. So I'm just pointing that out. They did, although I, I mean, again, and R- by eat their R- own R- young, again. I mean they make you go into debt for extra, like extraordinary debt to get that PhD. Well, yeah, and, President Biden, if you're listening, you could, you know, help, you could help us. Get all. You could forgive all student loans. Please, yes. thank you. Um, yes. Well, and it's interesting because relationships are different with different people, and. Um, Another RIP, but, you know, Robert Rittner, one of the, the great American Egyptologists of kind mm-hmm. of, you know, our generations just passed away. But he's always very nice to me. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I had the, um, with Yako, one of our professors, same thing with his advisor, Borgouts, mm. at Leiden, was um, very nice to me when I met him. Um, so sometimes these people have who have reputations for being like these harsh advisors who mm-hmm. are so demanding of their students. And I remember you know, presenting research and her coming up to me with some of the other RC board members. And it was like, Rittner's really impressed with your work. Hmm. And that meant something, yeah. um, which was interesting because I had also with another Egyptologist, he was questioning my work and I was going back and forth with him. Critical of your dissertation? He. So this person who will not be named, but we're still talking about was critical of your dissertation? So he was like, so Voldemort. Wor- we're calling him Voldemort from now on. So Voldemort works at a different site. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so he was like, well, <sighs> well, what you're doing would never work at Slytherin. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, I think it could, and here's why. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I present fairly I, well. Yes. And Especially based off what site Voldemort's working at. Yes. Yes. And, and he's like, well, I just don't know. And I was like, I haven't come to talk to me afterwards. Uh, and so Robert came up to me and he's like, I, I don't know what he's talking about. He's like, this is amazing. I hope you publish it because oh, awesome. so many people never do. And we talked for about 20 minutes. It's a very good memory. So let's publish it. Yeah. It's published. It's e-scholarship. Anyone I'm... can download my dissertation for free. Okay. Publish it in like a sweet article that's like more consumable. Yeah. Well, so what Kara's talking like, the about. The dissertation's hard to like. I technically have a book deal. He oh, does. we'll do that um, through Leipzig. Yeah. Uh, the problem came because it's very, it's very image heavy. Yes. And getting the copyrights because for me, I needed them from Turin, the BM. I needed them from the Neues Museum, you can do and it. then I needed them from Cairo. You I think I think Cairo would be the problem. So then, don't include Cairo. Just do line drawings. If you do line drawings, yeah. then it doesn't matter. It's just putting the time in to do that. Your wife is very iPad, good at doing line. You got drawings. an iPad. You got an Apple Pen. You're good to go. <laughs> One, so, the, so another moment, so, so, so the, the, the group doing that, so, so this was something facilitated by Kara. Um, I presented that work internationally mm-hmm. at a in, conference. In Leuven. Mm, Leuven. In, in Belgium. Yeah. Um, there are similar ones. I had won a couple of awards um, for my research. You won research. Best Student Paper. 
I won Best Student Paper. Oh, I won RC. a research prize from the Amer Egyptian Exploration Society. Um, oh, nice. So, you know, all of these things were, and <laughs> so like when I was presenting at that conference, um, you know, that was one of the funny things where it was one of those things because my stuff is, it, it's, we talked about this in the previous podcast, it's, it's a bit of a backwater. Mm -hmm. And this was a Dierro Medina conference, but I have a link there. So I kind of presented it and I was the last paper in the day. So everybody presents, it's a very quiet session. And I present and I had 30 minutes of questions. Mm. Nobody else, I think, had but one or two. And the moderator was like, oh, wow, finally a topic people care about. Well, it's because, like, no one works on the And they had to cut it off. <laughs> and then we went to dinner. Yeah. Um, and, and so these are the kind of things, at least for me, that you collect as forms of validation. Oh, 100%. Um, and this, can, this will tie in later when we talk about Alt-Act and what it means to change and mm -hmm. identity and how it's associated with that. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my decision was where to go. And Amber was in Los Angeles. And because and you loved Amber, I loved Amber. I still continue to love her. She's, she's mixed on me, yeah. but I continue to love her. Um, so, you know, I was trying to decide. And the thing um, that people may not realize now um, that Jordan, you'll well realize um, is Egyptology was much different then mm. in that there's so few undergrad programs that most people being admitted to graduate programs came in cold. Yeah. They were history majors. Mm -hmm. It was very general. Mm -hmm. Ideally, and this was, I think, the case about similar for you, Kara, mm -hmm. when you went to Hopkins, right? Like, yeah. you hopefully had... like a German. You I have had some German research and French. Languages. I didn't have any Egyptian at all. I had to yeah. do it in my first year of graduate school. Yeah. And for me, that, that solid last year, you know, I was entering grad school with a year of Coptic, mm -hmm. a year and a half of Middle Egyptian. Mm -hmm. I had been in a field school. I had done about a year or two of classes. That does not make, you know, somebody at a PhD level. So there was still work to do. Um, ironically, that type of experience now is now what I see as the baseline to get in. Oh yeah, yeah people, you you need a master's. Like yeah. they, I would, my language would have been seen as deficient. Yeah, only having <laughs> that. Whereas a year back of Coptic's then, pretty good. Now you Coptic. would have been okay. Two and a half years of Middle Egyptian, a year of Coptic, you would have been just fine. Yeah. But I was in those those classes with. Amber had already done some Middle Egyptian by then, but I was in there with all the incoming graduate students. Mm -hmm. So we were all in the same classes together. Yeah. And when I talked with the professors there, Vilika wanted me to stay and the other professor were like, yeah, there's, there's work to do here. It wasn't like I had done an undergraduate degree and spent five years studying them with them. It was like, well, you're going to get the odd new graduate seminar, but you're better off going and getting a different perspective. Yeah. So well, I yeah, stayed. I feel like that's always recommended to students too, to like differentiate their programs. You know, like even if you did an undergrad at U Chicago, it's like go somewhere else to but get like a new perspective. But you stayed because Amber was here. That was one of the primary reasons. Or like, yes. what else about? Did you go visit Chicago? Did you? So you were, you were talking to Rittner. There was not a program in, in Egyptology yeah. that focused on history, but Brown, historiography. Brown didn't have any. No, nope. I think we're, UCLA is still the only program that focuses on history. Mm -hmm. Social history, political history, or economic do it history. From a history department, and they're like Peter super, Brand does. Peter Brand does. Super but niche Peter Brand is. does, and Thomas Schneider does. But they don't really have. Thomas Schneider doesn't have many PhDs. Well, that's what I'm students. saying. But you have to go like abroad, yeah. And I've yeah. known Peter's had students, but they go in through the history department because yeah. I think yes, they're yes. That's the only place where you can do a PhD at Memphis is yeah. through the history department. So it's a very, it's not set up, which would probably surprise most people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so so. What I wanted to do, I actually 
couldn't necessarily find. Yeah. Um, but I thought, I like the people I'm working with here. I knew all the grad students. So I decided, so I decided to stay. And um, throughout the course of that, you know, you get exposed to different things. And, you know, did archaeology. And, and I actually have always wanted a family. And, you know, what I saw and I saw in the archaeologist was as much as that's a discipline, it's a way of life. Yeah. You know, they're in Egypt for three, four months a year. Very disruptive. And I saw many who put off having kids. Some never did um, by their own choice or by, you know, not by their own choice. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know, that's not what I necessarily want in terms of that lifestyle, that work I like. Yeah. Um, if you want the stability. Yeah. And then I kind of came back to my roots of history. And this coincides with then Kara coming back to UCLA. And I kind of said, oh, there's a way of. So I was there when you were an undergrad, and then I went and did my postdoc at Stanford, and then I did three years at the Getty, and then I got hired. So you were in your last two years of PhD. Yes, except that I was your research assistant at the Getty. So, that's so. right, oh God, I remember. You were, you were the RA. Mm -hmm. Yes, he was. That was awesome. Oh, wow. And that's where I finished my book. Yeah. so Because he would get cool. me all the good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was shuttling idea. books back and forth mm -hmm. between UCLA and the Getty, and um, got to work with Marie. They were doing the Heraclides analyses and they were like, oh, we need somebody. You work with Marie this. Swoboda. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. She'd come in and be like, what are the CT scans? Oh, this is like, this would be this or it could be this. Like, and cool. very just kind of interesting. I think I'm thanked in the publication on that. Oh, but, that's awesome. Um, so I kind of saw that, but then, right. So, so most people may or may not know, right. They talk about PhD times average being six years. Sciences, it's like five. Yeah. If you can, six is kind of a mark. Humanities can be like eight to 10. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I also was working as a mentor um, and, and, and worked as a mentor during, uh, as, as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And in like my sixth, seventh year, I was offered a full-time position, um, counseling undergraduate students in the Academic Advancement Program, mm -hmm. which is UCLA's program for underserved students. So they're transferring from community colleges and coming to UCLA? Not just transfers, first gen, mm -hmm. low income, mm -hmm. um, underrepresented minorities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that was work I was passionate about, but, but would have thought, oh, is there a, a place for me as a white mm -hmm. man within this? Yeah. So to have that place and feel like I can contribute to that message, mission, um, was a lot in that they kind of were considering me for this. And I talked to you and mm -hmm. I talked to Yako and I talked to Vilika. And for those of uh, us who aren't historians or have it right in the framing, this was the great recession starting. Mm -hmm. And they were like, Eric, there's literally no jobs. Like, yes, you should take this. And mm -hmm. it's going to take you longer so to finish. So you were almost, okay, so you took it even though you were still writing. Uh, yeah. So, so okay. I, at this point I was about to advance. Okay. I, I hadn't okay. even formally advanced. I was kind of, and they were like, this is going to take you longer, but this is a job and you can take a leave of absence and write and come back. Um, so I did that. Cause did UCLA have like the good TAing kind of funding options like we do now? Funding the was answer worse is then. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cause like now it's like, you can just, you know, teach for the the answer is no. Okay, that's what I thought. So, and this will get. Um, so that was like no. Getting a TA ship was like a dog eat dog kind okay. of world. It was really difficult, and it was very competitive. It was hard. It was, and one of the things, and this goes, this will come in later on down to play, and whatever success I have had is this. These were conversations Karen and I had, and I was able to hustle and get my own funding. Good. So I had other positions that funded me on campus good, good. and took care of fee remissions and yeah. things. So well, I mean, that was definitely part of Amber's alt act story too, right? Is funding is became kind of the major contention here. It did. And, and, and I was lucky to be in a situation where it was a choice that I felt like I could make that yeah. wasn't necessarily forced upon me. Yes. 
Um, this also coincides again with life events that my wife was pregnant with our first child. And I, and I thought, well, who got her pregnant? <laughs> I still, I still don't know. She looks just like him. And I, I know. Um, and I, and I, and I wanted to provide that stability. Yeah. And I again I looked at, so, so as opposed to looking at archeology, span I looked and I said, not only is the market bad right now, let's assume it recovers, but I knew Kara. I knew Vilica. So, so Kara, Vilica, and Yako, the three experience, the three Egyptologists with whom I had experience as mentors, um, had three very different career paths. Mm -hmm. You know, Vilica was actively excavating, living in Egypt full time yeah, until she was in her thirties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then got the UCLA position. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Kara did a much more traditional couple of postdocs, found something, you know, in the Getty that was kind of Altac, and Holding. then, yeah. but kept at it, got her publications and came in. Yako did what was more common in like the 70s, 80s, yeah. like, finished his PhD and got a job offer before it was done. How nice. Like mm -hmm. if you finish. So the advice you got from the three of them was also very different yeah. because not through anything malicious, it was based on the framing of their own experience, right? When the times had changed so much yes. at that point, yeah. So Yako being like, just focus on this and publish, that's not good advice now. Because especially what ended up happening at the Great Recession is people waited, there were no jobs for about three or four years. So I finished in like 2013, I filed. Mm -hmm. um, by the time I was on the job market, you were usually up against Germans who had done, uh, for those who don't know, not only their dissertation, but a habilitation. So you'd be up against people who would have, you know, two academic kind of monographs published through university presses that may not be great, but that were publishable, and a couple of articles. And I came in with, when I had started, which was, I think I had a book review or two, I had an article I was doing, and I had a book offer, and my yeah. dissertation was done. That was enough in the 2000s for you to get a shortlist, for yeah. you to get an interview. Now it doesn't. It's not nothing. That book needs to be done. And then it's a fight about whether or not that book counts for tenure. Mm -hmm. And that's just changing times. Um, but I knew I wanted a family and I did not want to be a freeway flyer and teach this class at LMU and this class at UCLA and this class at Santa Monica. And adjuncting is evil. And get paid like six grand. <laughs> and get paid six grand per course. We will alert you to the, the anti-adjunct comments in the show notes that we've yeah. already made on this yeah. podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and it was something where, and it comes down to identity. Yep. And I think for me being first gen from a blue collar background, it was easier to shift my identity because what I see now with people is that it is very hard to step away from what they usually spend 10 years of higher academic training saying, this is my identity and you need to make this or you haven't achieved it yeah. and they can't let it Your go. Your ego is too wrapped up into everything. And yeah. And I was very you know, easy to say, especially with our field, to say the jobs that I was looking at, because I did, I did really fall in love with um, EDI type work, mm -hmm. is, and Karen Equity, diversion, uh, diversion. diversion. Equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yes. Some, uh, it is, EDI it is, is often a diversion, yes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes diversion. Um, <laughs> but I was looking at Cal States. Mm. Um, I said, this is where you can do work. We have Cal States with below 50% graduation rates mm. um, for our underrepresented students. So your passion was really in the teaching 
and, and he was looking at helping, community colleges too and helping yeah. students i was looking at community colleges too so it goes back to your roots of being wanting to be like a high school teacher really that's how to i engage with the student body and and thinking about if not for this professor in community college if not for you know kara mm-hmm. or professor friedlander as an undergraduate if not for the experiences of people who took time in me to say you can do this yeah. it was even though i was taking graduate classes it was it was actually not an Egyptologist, and it's why I mentioned him. It was Professor Friedlander who called me in after I wrote my paper and said, um, you know, you're the best undergraduate I've seen in a couple years. And if you don't consider grad school, I, I think that'd be a waste. It's those type it's like, of those type of moments yeah. can change the trajectory of someone's life. Mm-hmm. So to think to, to, that I could be that and make yeah. that investment in students. Um, and so that's what I was looking at. But, um, you know, one, there still weren't many jobs. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found, I mean, one, looking back now, I teach usually one class a year, <laughs> sometimes two, um, to be at a CSU or, or Cal State and to teach a 4-4 four, four mm-hmm. or a 5-5. Five, five, mm-hmm. So that's for those listening, four or five classes each semester. Damn. I, I don't see how you Community can do it. Community colleges are 5-5. Five, five. So my friend is tenure track at a university in Maine. And she's a two, two, three. Mm-hmm. And she was just like three. She's like, I'm so exhausted. Mm-hmm. Like teaching three full, like my own classes. Yeah. Like, it's, it's exhausting. It is. Well, and I also was very specific in, um, there was only really one position I was interested in. And mm-hmm. I went up for and didn't get it. And it Which was because one? at, at uh, CSUSB, Kate Liska's position. Oh, yeah. And that really was to me, that, that was where I looked at it and said, why, why put yourself through that? Mm-hmm. And I can contribute in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that these are, you know, and, and then to go to like, okay, then at the end of the day, having a family, yeah. you know, you want to be able to contribute and support that family. And within, so, so I'm in my job. So I applied for that position when I was still uh, within academic counseling. Mm-hmm. And within academic counseling, what I saw was I wanted to have a larger impact. Mm-hmm. And I said, what I'm doing at the groundwork now is now triage. Where can I affect broader change? And that led me to the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, so the academic Senate is part of our shared governance structure, which represents the faculty. They oversee all the curriculum and the academic policies. Um, and I went there, was promoted through there very quickly and became the lead person who did all undergraduate so policy analyses. Some mobility within these more the more business side of the university. Absolutely. Yeah. It's 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 about how you develop and market yourself. He had a very close relationship with the executive <laughs> vice chancellor. I mean, this is you know, Eric was as as Scott Waugh said at one meeting that somebody mentioned Eric Wells and he goes, Eric Wells hits above his pay grade. He hits far above his pay grade. That was said in the moment. I think I told you about it. Yeah. Um, and I was like, mm, mm, mm. that's my first PhD. So, you know, he, he, Eric ended up being in community, working in community with professors in all different divisions at UCLA to create our shared governance. And it, that can get contentious, hyper-political. And you learned, I think, in those years more about the way a UC and UCLA in particular, but a, a UC campus runs, who runs it, how decisions are made than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And now that you're in a different position as the chief executive officer of life sciences, I think you bring everything you do from life sciences with you. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was wonderful experience and it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting because it was a very high profile position. Yeah. 
and it was something where um, you know you know it's it's almost like a, a slumdog millionaire where all these little pieces come together right mm-hmm. so Vilica who we've been talking about at my time at the Senate I was the the chief kind of policy analyst for the undergraduate council but I would work in tandem with the graduate council mm-hmm. and Vilica happened to be graduate chair and we'd have meetings and you know she'd introduce me as a very good Egyptologist you know that would be part of the conversation um, our EVC then Scott Waugh was a historian mm-hmm. and we'd be you know in those rooms talking about you know important issues so, so to be able to contribute those con- to, conversa- to those conversations what I saw in that position was I'm doing the type of thing I had hoped to do eventually at the end of my career if I had gone an academic route. If I had gone in and could get tenure and become a chair and then be at the point where you're talking about let's design new academic programs and Mm -hmm. let's analyze these academic programs and are they meeting the students needs? Are they meeting our faculty's needs? Are we supporting research the way we should? Um, So that I enjoyed that work immensely but I did miss the kind of frontline work. And that's what led me back to my current position is, is I said, okay, you know, how can I take everything I've learned about best practices and some political structures, but also like what I think works, what mm-hmm. doesn't, and put them in a place that's going to have a big impact. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where I'm at now. Cool. Um, and along the way, I remember talking with Kara, this was maybe, this was maybe 2018, mm-hmm. um, um, 2018, 2019, and then there was a position, and Kara was like, "Oh, would you think about applying for that?" And it was tenure track, and I and I laughed, and I said, "Not unless I want to take a pay cut." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because people don't realize, you know, um, admin work pays. And admin work with the PhD pays more. Mm. Not just that admin work pays, but for a lot of these positions we're talking about, assistant professors, you're starting sixty to sixty-five thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My first job as a counselor, I made the bottom threshold, which mm-hmm. was forty-six thousand which is low. This was yeah. 2011. But the discrepancy between those two is not much. And as you make one promotion, another job, mm-hmm. each one, it's a 10%, a 15% yep. mm-hmm. raise. And very quickly, you look at it and you say, oh, wow, I'm, I'm all of a sudden making what I would have been making as an associate professor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the danger is when you get fixed to that identity of I want to be a professor. Mm-hmm and you stagnate, and you stay in that one position. Just for a second, take a breath and talk about the affirmative action for all masculine members of the human mammalian community, (laughs) which is extraordinary because women outperform men by, I don't know, like 20, 30%, and to get an equal 50-50 representation of males, females, however you define that, at any university except for, I don't know, community college where they probably don't do this, you, you give male affirmative action, like, up the wazoo. I would just like to point that out, but then let's go back to this discussion. Well, no, and it is worth saying that this is... So one of my roles when I was undergraduate policy analysis, uh, analyst was also undergraduate admissions. Mm. And this was something that was brought up because statistically... At UCLA and many institutions of higher education, men are underrepresented. Yeah. And if you look across the board. But it's okay. Every, well, so this is, and this is, this is literally the conversation. Well, it's equity versus e- equality. It's, it goes back to and all these that. these are the stuff. conversations that we had. If you look across every socioeconomic group, across every racial group, out of high school. Women are always going to outperform men. Women outperform men. Always. And out of undergrad. We fucking know it. They, they, Come on, they outperform it. men. Always, mm-hmm. and then and then son. we don't get any jobs. Holy shit! Well, and this is where it yeah. gets, and this is where it gets interesting. And I don't have an answer. It flips in grad school. 
and grad school. It flips all of a sudden, probably junior senior year, but yeah. Well, no, women still graduate at higher rates at four-year institutions, but grad school. I'm gonna go with ego, and imposter syndrome affects women. That but maybe, women aren't but giving also, birth at 23 anymore. That I think it's imposter syndrome. There's got to be a community shift that people don't so feel welcome. School, people like, aren't confidence and ego is so much more of a thing because you're perfectionism amongst people. of the female. Well, I think you're just amongst people who are all really smart. Higher standards. So then it's I think men just have better egos. No, I think that that's part of it. I men think get to fail hard, fail big, fail awesome, and we're like, oh no, I made a mistake. Yeah, and then kill me now. Yeah. I was talking with some, some female faculty about this the other day. There's um, a new assistant professor I know, and she just had a baby. I didn't feel stifled until grad school. Yeah. It's, you felt stifled until grad school? I didn't feel stifled. I didn't feel like... You feel stifled now? Not stifled, but like I didn't have like imposter syndrome or like question like how smart I was or anything like that until grad school. Really? Yeah. I finally felt free in grad school. Like mm -hmm. I could really perform and be... I think it's just that a much smaller finally. knit thing. So you're sitting there comparing yourself to everyone constantly, and I think it's I think it's hard to so. so I mean, I would still say I have some of that imposter syndrome. I don't. All I don't do everyone does. Go everyone, yeah. everyone, everyone, everyone. Doesn't I, matter how old you are. But I would say you know, and again, it's one of the things I like. I felt because for many years I was the only male in our program, mm. <laughs> and it was I thought a more inclusive env environment. But it's what you compare yourself to, and. You know, I, I know, Kara, we've had conversations early in your career that you can resonate with this, even though you're part of the system now. You look at your professors as pinnacles of knowledge mm. that are unattainable. Yeah. I don't present myself as that fucking ever. It's, Which is what? Good. I don't do I that. It, it, it is good. Yeah. But, but it is something we internalize we when someone knows so much. Way. No, don't. But it's not until you get to know you that that... <laughs> But then that's why you come to my house and you don't yeah. see me that way. <laughs> yeah. but, but, <laughs> but this is something where... <laughs> but, but then, don't see me that way. But then even beyond that, right? But I like, was terrified of you first year. Really? Yeah, you're Karakuni. Oh, shit. But it, then you came to my house and it was fine. Yeah, but it took a couple years. Okay. But it was like, it's more of a, a me problem, not a you problem. Yeah, well, and it's what you're exposed to. Yeah. I, I, for me, it was not in, in the poor students, right? Um, you know, of, of my, so I became, and, and it's sad for me to say this now, when I, at my time at the Senate, I became a much better writer. Mm. And one of the things, you know, my dissertation was rushed. We were talking about this during the break. I'd have liked to have done more, done better, but I was working. I had a baby. Um, you finished it. I finished it. I finished it doing it Saturdays and Sundays at my public library <laughs> where I had to go to have a break. Um, but it was something where, you know, you're comparing yourself to the top. And what you see yep. and when you go to a conference and you see a bad paper mm -hmm. you're like oh well that person just had a hard time yeah um and for me i always did very well at conferences mm -hmm. and part of this too was something where to me that's what's the good part because when you sit down to write you you figured it out largely and the figuring out is what's fun <laughs> Speak no, for yourself. No, I, 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 I only speak for myself. No, but writing is often writing figuring it out. Writing confuses me more. I'm writing like, is the process of wait, figuring it out. Wait, how do I say this? See, I'm very Socratic. I'm like, I say it to Jordan, and you're like, what do you, what do you mean? And then I refine my idea, oh. and then we have a conversation, and it's that conversation to me that's productive. Okay. Um, I have but, to figure it out by writing. There's something wrong with that. Me too. Um, Don't doubt. <laughs> but it's at, fine. Well, it's like, it's like different learning styles, <laughs> yes. right? But at the Senate, I, I literally wrote pages every day. Mm -hmm. I wrote white papers. I wrote policy. I wrote memos. I wrote minutes. 
I mean, and I think working at the Getty for me, writing these very boring analytic stuff, it does help because you're just like... It does. It's like cold hard facts. And Especially in the confines of what our chancellor, not anybody, our chancellor has called the failed system of the quarter system. Mm. To try to be a graduate student and mm -hmm. to do a research paper in, in 10 weeks when we often cannot even get the sources we need, that they haven't been scanned and they're coming into your mm -hmm. library loan. And you identify a topic week three and they come in week eight. Yeah. Um, so anyways, so, so for me, it was, that was a challenge because, you know, it wasn't until I, and this is horrible because it's an experience most do not have. It wasn't until I started winning external awards mm -hmm. and best student paper and getting that recognition from, you know, Antonio, that recognition from colleagues elsewhere that I felt validated. And I know that I'm lucky because most people don't have that conversation. You know, so many people go to their first conference and they give a disastrous paper and they read and their hands are shaking and you mm -hmm. see it and they don't interact with their slides. The beta blocker. Um, and, and, it's, and, and I get it. I get that that's intimidating, but that's something where you don't have that comparison. Yeah. So, so you don't know how to gauge yourself. Yeah, that's, I think that's part of it is that there's not like, you know, undergrad, you get a grade. Yeah. You're like, A, you did a good job and you're like, yeah, I did a good job, grad school. We don't really. We don't. I mean, you. You don't really either get like, grades. You get grades, but it's only you if you do like. You just have to kind like, of suss it out. It's only if you like fuck up that you get like a bad grade, and you're like, I fucked up. If you got an A minus, yeah, you're or like, a B plus, oh, there's I did a problem. Wrong. There's but, like, a serious problem. But like otherwise, it's just like that's the base expectation. Yeah. Is well, that you're gonna do like a good job? And if you're all A students and there's twelve of yeah. you, who's going to win? How's it going to work? There's still yeah. an eternal competition. And, and when you win, what do you win? What is it winning? Yeah. What What is there? And you're like, I just have to do. Well, then it's more pressure to keep performing at that same level in a way. It's almost like you don't, you, like winning is all, also bad because then it's like, okay, I have to keep winning. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and also what is, what is that meaning? What does that winning what really mean? mean? Yeah. Because, you know, that was something where, you know, we're all drawn to our research because we find it interesting. So everyone's going to somewhat have a bias as to, You'd oh, be amazed at how many grad students don't follow through with their research. And I'm like, why are you even here? Well, and that's not I, among our cohort right now, but yeah. I have seen it where I'm like, you're not interested, you're not working. What are you even doing? What I will not. Doing? I will not name names, but the people who I felt were the smartest, who came in as the most talented while I was a student, flame out the hardest. They did. They did. They they did not put in effort. They mm -hmm. could not contribute, and they seemed like what we talk about with high school students. What I see when what I see with the undergrads I teach mm -hmm. now where they never struggled and they got to a point where they like did. I always felt like this was me. <laughs> and then when they started to struggle, they couldn't deal with it. They but couldn't you have course to, correct. You, you have to, ex I think the earlier you experience that, the better you can be like, all right, like I need to figure out like a new system. Yeah. And I didn't experience that into my master's program. Yeah. And I had to figure out a new system because it was like, oh, just me being me isn't working anymore. Like I actually have to like put in like actual effort now yeah. versus but undergrad, high school, I didn't have to like, put in any effort. Well, and to go back to, to succeed to identity for many people, what I saw was when they hit that, there's not something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the system. Yeah. I should not have to change. I've never had to study more than an hour to a night. And why am I going to have to study yeah. four hours a night every mm -hmm. night to learn? They're giving glyphs? me too much work to do. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I specifically remember like getting a paper with a B plus from and, like, Chicago sobbing. Really? <laughs> and being like, I'm a terrible writer, I'm a terrible student. And like, it still sticks with me to this day, where so I have like, 
that's I, like my imposter syndrome and I felt so and then I, I would compare myself to Jeff who was getting like really good grades and like doing great and I was like something I have I have wrong. a I have a similar one you know where I had gotten a B plus on a paper and but but here's the thing and it and in retrospect it still makes me not happy mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's there was no feedback yeah. There was no do this to be better. Yeah. I yes. There was no it's because you said this and not this. There was no here's how your argument was flawed. So I just like to jump in and say Mine was that yeah. I I always felt like the not smartest person in the room. I went to a very competitive high school with brilliant people and I was not in the spiral, I don't mm-hmm. remember what it stands for, but it was a gifted and like talented gifted, program. Yeah. I was in like an advanced sort of thing, up. but not like a super gifted and yeah. talented. That was I, me too. I couldn't make it with the I science I was never like AP super honors. I was no, just like I was never honors. super honors. Yeah. And, and also I remember getting C's and D's in math in the fifth and sixth grade. And I remember being highly embarrassed about that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, my lowest grades in undergrad were a C in calculus and a B minus in something math. I don't remember. And so I don't know. It's funny when, when I finally got to study what I wanted, um, I, I always knew that it's, it's a funny thing. It's, I knew I wasn't the smartest person in the room. I knew I had to work harder. And I think having failed earlier was very much in my benefit rather than not. Mm -hmm. And it's why as a professor and as a chair, when I'm recruiting, I'm fine to recruit the hungry student who's seen some hardship rather than the student who's getting money thrown at them by three Ivies and I have to compete. Yeah. I, I don't think it's worth it. I'd oh. rather take the hungrier student who's going to, with gratitude, work like a beast. And then we see. Mm-hmm. And also de- dealing with the situation of higher education that has been imploded from the inside out by late stage capitalism, they're going to be more flexible in that milieu because how else are you supposed to do it? You can't expect things to be given to you yeah, as, yeah. as grades with the A pluses and all of the shiny stars are given to you. It's not going to work that way. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And when I hire staff, it is similar. I, I, what I say to them and what I say to hire, my hiring team is I don't want that smart person who never failed, who's going to go from this or that. At, its, at, my, at their base, I want passion because mm-hmm. passion will lead to work ethic and I can mold that. I can mold that into whatever I need it to be. If you're passionate at your core about what we do, whether that's counseling students, whether that's you know teaching students, whether that's advancing our EDI mission, if you're passionate about that, I can turn that and mentor that into... Yeah, skills can always be taught, so exactly. it's not that big of a deal. As opposed to the person that you look at that looks great, and I look at their CV and I see you've moved every year and a half to two years, mm-hmm. and that's... That's what you're going to do here. You're just you're just looking Using for the next like the lo- rung on the ladder. Yeah. So, Eric, do you still do Egyptology? It depends what you mean by do Egyptology. Well, so I was going to say you teach at LMU. <laughs> I teach at LMU. Adjunct. Mm-hmm. Um, which to me is like a good like best of both worlds. You have like your, you know, admin job at UCLA, but then you get to still dabble in the Egyptology by teaching and get to you know do your. And you teach stuff. Egyptian language, right? I teach hieroglyphs and I teach religion usually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How many students do you get in hieroglyphs at LMU? It's going to make you sad. How many? Well, My class max is out. How, what, like 30? <gasps> Our max enrollment is 24. Oh, wow. wow. Still, that's a that's lot. A We're lot. a small liberal arts institution. That's 24 a lot, students though. and it maxes out. It maxes out. That's a lot, though. And mm-hmm. you have a reputation. I, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm probably on rate my professor in some of those Let's things. Let's look it up. Well, you wouldn't that. max out if you didn't have a reputation. Um, 
I mean, it's it's a fun class. It's it's you know the thing about LMU that's different. Should make Art Egypt hieroglyph class online and cross enrollment. Yeah, cross enroll it with yours. Steal all your students. Why well, don't we do that? <laughs> well, so so here's the problem, or here's the challenge, right? And I found this somewhat free and freeing when I started teaching outside of UCLA. Um, there are classics majors, mm-hmm. but there's not Egyptology majors. Yeah. So everything I do is on the assumption that this is your one and only class. There's literally not a hieroglyph semester two. Mm -hmm. So there is no point in going over, you know, hey, you know, here's here's what Alan initially said. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to decline our verbs as five ways. Now we're shrinking down this way. And here's a Sejam NF. It's I'm going to teach you how it works. Yeah. We're going to learn some formula. You're going to be able to do some spot reading in a museum. You're going to learn about the culture of hieroglyphs um, and the nature of hieroglyphs. And it's learning that because I'm not setting you up to go on and to, yeah. to take... This is just a fun elective. Yes. This is not for you to do this so that next semester you're going to start reading Shipwreck Sailor. Yeah. Right. Um, or you're going to use this to then go to grad school or something. Exactly. And I've had students who've gone to grad, stu- mm-hmm. to grad school. And I've told them that. I've been like, yeah, there's going to be things, you know, you're going to want to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and with religion, it is very much taught in a, you know way that I'm trying to extrapolate things beyond that class. So I kind of told them, you know, we just kind of wrapped up this semester and I, and I gave them how I think Egyptian religion peters out. Mm-hmm. And I talked somewhat about what we talked about in, in the last episode. It just peters out into Christianity. It does. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, and I kind of talk about philae. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, you know, you know, it ends not with a, not with a bang, but with a whimper. But I, I try to make it relevant and I say, you know, look at what they're doing in the Ptolemaic period and look at what they're doing in the late period. Um, and I had a screenwriter in my class. Mm. Um, um, that's the interesting thing there. They have practical majors. So I've got business and screenwriting mm. and theater. Um, they're not a research institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, they're trying to make a four quadrant religion. They're trying to make a religion that appeals to every demographic mm-hmm. and to every member of this now, you know, multi-ethnic, multilingual society. Yeah. Um, you know, when I talk about magic, we spend a lot of time talking about magic because I say, I don't want you to think that these are stupid, primitive people who are doing these spells thinking it means something. The Eucharist is, is magic. Yeah. yeah. And, and what well, is and it? Well, LMU is like very Catholic. Catholic they are very Jesuit, Catholic. a Jesuit. fine Jesuit university. Jesuit, yeah. 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 And I say, you know, this is something where there's a psychological comfort. And for them, right, this is, this is, this is something that begins where their knowledge ends. Placebo effect. Last rites yeah. is magic. Placebo it's all, effect. It's, it's any placebo. Yeah. 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 And and so that that they should not think about these as people much different than us. Mm-hmm. That these are people doing the best they can with the tools they build. So yeah. it's trying to get them to make those connections. Explanations for things happening around them. Yeah. So 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 that plus a little bit of interest and the mm-hmm. benefit I have going in is is like we've talked about um, you know a little bit is there's so much built-in interest. Yeah. Every term, it's multiple students who come up to me and say, I've been interested in this since I was a little oh, yeah. kid, it's and amazing. it's been so much fun to learn more, and yeah. thank you. Yeah, and they're like, I didn't think this was like a job people did. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, yeah. <laughs> so that's It how- really isn't, but... <laughs> well, no, we teach the same students. Most of our students are self-campus yeah, students or non-humanity students yeah. who need their GEs, and we have a diversity GE, we have history yeah. GEs, we have medical humanities, we have all kinds of things, and they come, they're like, oh my God, this has been my favorite class. Yeah. I'm like, then why don't you double major? And we pull some of mm-hmm. them. But most of them are like, no, no, I have to do this because yeah. of the economy, because yeah. of my parents, because of social conditions. This is what I must do. But I love what you but do. We are valued. We are valued. There will skills. be a pushback. 
but I see that pushback happening in like 15 years against this hyper trade mm-hmm. um, universe, this hyper trade education project that we are all engaged in globally. I don't see that shifting for for some time. I think you're right, and I think that it's something where, you know, in some ways, forty-five. We have to keep. <laughs> we have to keep it alive. What you're saying. We have to keep the humanities alive, and then we'll be able to grow from there. Well, and and in some ways, right, it gets into you know, the philosophy of education, right? Yeah. And and a lot of you know, looking at a liberal arts education, you know, a lot of this is from hundreds of years of wanting to to you know raise. Well-rounded men who could mm-hmm. have engaging well conversations at men. parties. Learn Latin and you learn, quote Shakespeare. Exactly, you have Latin and Greek, and those are your entrance exams. And right, never you never your dissertation in Latin. Yeah, the and these were all right. It was just and this and even within our field, and I think you see some of the remnants. Right, it mm-hmm. wasn't until you know really the po- post World War II era that you weren't wealthy going into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh well. You know, you didn't need scholarships because you, you had, had to have money. means to go study these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's broadened it. And I think that's broadened the perspectives. Um, and I think that that's something where we will see people who gravitate into this. And then people who see that you pull other things out of that. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think people, you know, r- that's right now where the pendulum has swung the other way, where people don't get that a liberal arts perspective is about getting this well-rounded view yeah. and it always fascinates me having operated at some of the higher levels of the university that people think that they're these liberal bastions and when you're inside mm-hmm. they are so conservative <laughs> they are so resistant to change yeah they are um that the people who are running the university now are people and they're usually in their 60s and 70s mm-hmm. quite often um they're people who trained in their field 40 50 years ago mm-hmm. And, and there is a bias within academia to self-replicate. What I do with Egyptology is not something I want to monetize. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong, money is great. <laughs> I want money. Let me tell you, it doesn't monetize very <laughs> yeah. easily. Um, no. And, and so, so like the podcast, <laughs> I never sought out advertisers. I had some contact me. Mm-hmm. I was never like, oh my God, I want to be Joe Rogan and get bought mm-hmm. by Scott of Spotify. That was not the goal. Teaching pays you because they have to, but you and I have talked about this, Kara. I literally cannot teach at UCLA because it would cost me money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if I could teach at UCLA for free, I've told Kara, if I could, I would. And, and, from, and so for me, with any of these endeavors, with something like a book, with something like the podcast, it's how do I find a way to engage in these conversations that's stimulating, that's fun, that doesn't feel like work, and I don't feel like, okay, at the end of the day, I need to get this type of return to make it yeah. worth it. But it's like, it means something, um, you know, last time I saw her, you know, um, a colleague, fellow UC colleague, Elaine Sullivan, mm. she's like, oh, I really like your Amarna stuff. I give it in my class and I tell students to listen to it because um, it's there yeah. and it's free. And to me, this, this is what I feel. I've, I'm teaching, I got the CUTF for next year. Oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Adding, thank you. Tell people what it is and tell them why it's um, a big deal. Collegium of Undergraduate Teaching Fellowship. So I, you apply to teach your own class um, based off your dissertation work. So you apply with the whole syllabus and all that kind of stuff. So And what's the title of your class? Fashion in the Ancient World. So cool. But I have so much of my you know required readings, readings are podcasts, mm-hmm. episodes, uh, or blog posts by academics and stuff. So we should flip the script and I'll interview you. Ah, Oh yeah, my God, let's could. do that. And I'll interview you and ask you all about fashion. Yeah. Okay, that'll be super fun. <laughs> yeah, we can do That's it. That's what we're going to do. But I'm trying to include more of like non-traditional academic things. 
Well, and, and I think uh, the root of this too, to me, is it gets into what really is our, is our mission. Yeah. And I saw this a few years ago. I'm going to believe probably that it's still valid as a, as a statement of fact. The majority of humanity's articles are never cited. Hmm. So terrifying. It is. And if your, um, if your goal is an impact, if your goal is to spread ideas, and if your goal is to encourage people to think, this right here, this one podcast, if people never read my work, they never read my class, this will touch more people than my dissertation ever mm -hmm. will. For our listeners, to help kind of maybe make more connections, what skills from your PhD do you see you using, you know, on a consistent basis within your alt-act job? Um, you know, to kind of prove, to the, I'm trying to prove the point that you can, you know, you can get a PhD in these humanities fields, but the skills are all transferable to other jobs. Sure. Well, well, we'll see what my advisor says if she agrees. Because <laughs> um, it was something I took some heat from from other members of the committee. So, so my data set, right, we're talking about mm -hmm. hundreds. We're not talking about millions. But I did what I call a dumb statistical analysis. Okay. So it was bucketing, it was percentages. Uh, I could have bootstrapped it to try to get like an actual, you know, is, are we looking at a statistical variant that's meaningful? But I thought that was silly. Yeah. Um, but Archaeological what I, preservation allows so yeah. little of that. It does. But what I do, in, I think, in my dissertation is I make data-driven conclusions and decisions. Mm -hmm. From and, incomplete information. Yes. Oh. And you could, and, and, I, and then I mix in to that quantitative equality, qualitative. So when I look at, at ASIUT, and basically I look at all the different variables, I look at the different iconography, mm -hmm. what God is depicted where, go through do a cluster analysis. Are there any kind of commonalities here? Oh, hey, you know, military individuals have more diversity in terms of the gods they represent not being Wepwaut than any other group. And you go to the why. <laughs> then I go to the why. Yeah. And what I have found is that, that the ability to make data-driven arguments is what has made me successful. Mm. And that in, I had written some grants and things when I was a counselor mm -hmm. and kind of showed data as to why we needed more resources and things. Um, when I was at the Academic Senate and we'd get proposals, um, I, would, I would do counter-analyses and I would do white papers. And oftentimes, and this is where it came into something Kara talks about, it's, it's, it's networking and who you know. Yeah. And this is something Amber and I talk a lot, because Amber's like, <laughs> coming from Illinois, she, she's like, you know, if we go back home and you just transplant your salary, we buy a house tomorrow, we yeah, buy this oh, tomorrow, yeah. we buy that tomorrow. But Live in large. We do, but so much of what I do is because, um, you know, I used to joke, our old EVC was a historian, and I would joke with people and I would say, I'm, I'm a social historian by training and I'm a social historian of this place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are things on paper. You are a social historian of UCLA. Yeah. yeah. And you are very good at it. You are very good at seeing where power is, how it works, how it networks, who the individuals are that can make something happen within a system, how systems compete with each other. You're probably the best person I know for for sussing out how the UCLA system works. I, I haven't met anyone else who's able to do it. Well, thank you. I have He blushes. <laughs> I do. I haven't. I haven't. And when I need to figure out a difficult problem, like, Eric, what do I do? How do I deal with this? Um, <laughs> you, you're, you're very good at it. You, you understand how it works. And those were all skills that came from navigating the politics of academia, mm -hmm. navigating, you know, my data set, and that now I just apply that same lens. 
So the other thing I like about your journey that I think is so interesting is that you gave a cold, hard stare to the circumstances in which you were. You also, like Robert Rodriguez, when he made his independent film in the 90s in Texas, looked at your assets, counted them up and said, I have a turtle, I have a guitar case, I have a village in Mexico, (laughs) and I have a family with cars and they're going to help me make this film. And you put together your assets and you're like, I can do these things. I can't do that. Or I could do that, but I'm going to, I have like a, you know, 5% of return on this. And you, you counted up what would get you the best return in that moment. And without bemoaning the fact that you, that the circumstances of a recession worked out against you without complaining about it, you just went forward with what was available to you at the time. And I think that is something that everyone all of us in this world need to work with rather than waiting for your ticket to come in. Nothing's going to fall in your lap. Nothing's going to fall in your lap. You have to make it, but you, and people are always like, it's like the old joke where, you know, they're, they get to heaven and they're like, you didn't save me. And God's like, I sent you a lifeboat. Mm -hmm. I sent you a raft. And then I sent you this other thing and you didn't take any of them because you were like, God save me. It's like that. You have to make your own luck with what you have available at the time. You were able to do that. So many people who get PhDs are like, oh, woe is me, there's no jobs. I mean, we already know this. Woe is me, higher education doesn't value humanities and thought. This is true as well. But that doesn't mean that you should adjunct for a living and and value yourself less. And as the years go by, that devaluation of yourself and waiting for that, that magical, mythical thing to fall into your lap, that you somehow think will make you feel great is not going to happen. What will make you feel great is earning a salary with benefits. Your plan B can become your plan A and there's nothing wrong with that. And that's, that's what I like Mm -hmm. about your situation. Um, people don't say yes to what's right in front of them. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes right there and they're like, no, but this isn't what I want. I want that thing over there way, way, way over there. But the thing I can't have that I can't have, but I want that. So I'm going to wait because if I say yes to this, and this is the hardest thing for me is seeing people say no to something because they think they can never then say yes to something Mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. When in fact, if you say yes to something that doesn't create a black mark, that means you can never have that again. Yeah. And you have to be, I think you have to be malleable in your identity. And in some ways, I think to me, being able to do that is because I'm from a family where I'm the first person to go to college and it's blue collar and I always felt less than. So I didn't feel entitled to this. I always felt I'm surprised to be here. Mm. And um, I I think mixed within that was um, a kind of mentality that you just have to work hard. And whatever job you had, you just needed to apply yourself to that. Yeah, and you needed to do a good job. And I think that that was where from what I've seen, there's a little bit of optimism. So I, I guess I, it may, may, may not make sense, but I consider myself like a cynical optimist. Mm-hmm. And I think- I'm a cynical optimist. I would say I'm the same way. Oh, yes, good. Absolutely. So for me, it was, it was at that time of the recession. And it was at that time when there were no jobs. And seeing people who were bitter. Well, yeah, I mean, there's nothing left, left to lose. So you're like, let's just- well, create your own space. Yeah. And I, I still had funding and I had a job offer and I looked at the people who were postdocs and we know some of them and their friends and they were very bitter people. And what I saw in them was that they felt like the world owed them something mm-hmm. and that the game was not fair. Mm-hmm. And I said, 
the game is Always, not fair. Yeah. It's never fair. Surprise! And the, but the world doesn't owe you anything. And you taking yourself out of the game mm -hmm. is not going to change the game. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of just need to realize that. So you know this from personal experience, mm -hmm. and it is something I've seen in every field of academia. The, the outside new shiny penny... Yeah, mm -hmm. is the one that they want. Yeah. Oh yeah, they always want. Sometimes you have to make that. yourself into that. You do. You leave. Mm -hmm. And I see yeah. people. I see people now who they adjunct in a department. For, for years, they're they a lecturer. Eventually, they'll hire. They them think eventually like, my no, advisor is going to retire. They're always the person mopping the floor. They need yeah. to leave, get the job with benefits, and then they can come yeah. back. Yeah. Otherwise, forget it. Only distance yeah. makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. and and especially at UCLA being elite. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's this gets into another relationship dynamic, which is they're like, why am I going to date you when no one else wants you? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, Jordan, in four years, we'll come back and see where you're at with this conversation. Um, we are fortunate enough, Kara and I, well, one, I'm not in academia. <laughs> yeah, but about. you're connected, which is brilliant. So all of our students coming up now, you're not only connected to UCLA, but with the Academic Senate, in many ways, you're connected outside of UCLA with mm -hmm. Loyola, too. So you're you're a good resource. We, I, I'm close to admin, so we have other good admin resources, and admin is is. There's good jobs out there, and there's a staff shortage, mm -hmm. and they're hiring, and they're hiring at high salaries. Well, and I, and I hope to be a good resource, but what I was going to say is we don't have trailing spouses. And oh, this yeah. isn't especially a, a, a problem for women in academia. Mm -hmm. You know, statistically speaking, you know, women tend to marry at or above their education level. Women, men tend to marry at or below. So generally that means... You have a PhD, your partner's going to have a PhD. Yep. And, and it is a thing, and it sounds subservient, but right now it is the case, the trailing spouse is usually a male. And when you put in male fragility and male ego, and they're... Thank you, Eric, you said they're it. Following, they're following you, yes. and they now, if you take that retention offer, you're sitting there saying, honey, they want me to come on at associate. Mm -hmm. They're bringing me on tenured. It's yeah. this much of a raise. We, I see and it it's a lecturer here it versus a lecturer there. Yeah. Um, and you see it all the time, and you see it break down a lot. Yeah, I do. Mm. Um, and on the other side, I will say, in a way that I usually do not see with men, women fight to get them tenured positions, because yeah. usually the fight is to get a spousal appointment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And men don't seem to fight nearly as hard. Or what was also the last straw? What was the thing that, that drove you away from the field, where you're like, mm -hmm. that's it, I'm done? I think, you know, I never had that. In some ways, you didn't. You took an opportunity rather than waiting for a last straw. I mean, I... That's, I, that's what I want everyone to do. Not yeah. wait for a last straw. Don't wait for that where you're so beaten down and then finally one and last thing just increases the load of bitterness so much yeah. you can't handle it. You should be always looking for opportunities, saying yes to those things while trying to work the other thing on the side. Mm -hmm. That's what you have to do. No. If, if the extent to which I am out of the field, um, I left the field, the field did not leave me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's... You the field did not force you out. It didn't force me out, as opposed to what I see with a lot of people is it's like they stayed in the relationship too long until yeah. you drove each other it crazy. And it became bitter as opposed to amicable. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, it, it became, like you said, abusive. Um, yeah. and, and that's really how it gets. I mean, I, I look at these people who I really feel for them. And I, when I, but I also, I think some people need to be ready. 
Yeah. And when I have care of, we'll, you know, say, can you talk to this person, that person? And I do over the years always. I usually, it's been closed. It should be open soon, I hope. I'll take them out to lunch at the faculty center. Yeah. And I tell them. May 23rd. Yes. <laughs> um, and I tell them, you know, you have to. You were there. You have to be honest <laughs> with yourself yeah. about what's going to make you happy. And, you know, and I say, if you're going to be going the academic side, throw everything into that with a timeline. Give yourself, if it's three years, say three years, and you work your ass off to publish, and if you adjunct on the side to make that, then you do that. I see it in the sciences. If you're running a lab, running a lab, get your grants, go on digs. But if you haven't made it by then, there you needs know, to be a point in time where you call there it. needs to be a point where you decide for yourself you call it, yeah. and then you, you invest everything and, in something else. And yeah. there can be a half thing. So you invest everything in something else, but then if the right and perfect job comes up, you apply for that and, and just pickier. that. You, you're yeah. very picky in your applications, and that's okay. Yeah. So there's all kinds of ways to game this and strategize. What people, and I didn't think about this until I was in my, my staff roles, yeah. um, that, that, that Kara has to do with, is at its core, academia is a constant push for validation. Mm, and yeah. that shit fucks you up. It does. Yeah. Love me. Love me. Love me. Love me. Love me. Am I a value? You're criticizing me. Oh no, oh, no, yeah. no. Yes. It's, too it's well with that. who likes my, who likes my book? Yeah. Who's publishing my article? Which yeah. house is publishing my book? Mm. How did my last review go up? How did my colleagues, did I get voted for a distinguished professor? Mm -hmm. Am I full? Did I make tenure? And that's a constant cycle. Mm -hmm. Whereas opposed to me, I do probably, I put in a lot of hours. It's probably 60 hours a week just on my main job, on my busy times. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, it is tasks and it is a lot of strategic stuff, but I don't go home and think I have to write this article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't go home and think. You can turn it off easier. Yeah. Like you, you sit there and you're like, oh my God, I we need to. We like, are like, oh, I feel guilty for relaxing. Yes. There's always something you yeah. can be doing. I yes. should have been writing a chapter. You're the nine to five is a little I'm bit more easier to I'm supposed to be working on my revisions for chapter off. four right yeah. now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here I am talking to you guys. Yeah. And, no, and, and my... That was, that did, it fell flat. <laughs> it fell flat. Unaffected. It was, un it was ineffective only because we were all like, yeah, I have other stuff I should be doing. <laughs> we were all like, wait, the other things I should be doing. That's probably a good place to turn to your last question. My last question <laughs> is where do you see yourself in 10 years? Oh, gosh. So in 10 years, let's see, I'll be 53, so I'll still have a bit left before retirement. I do hope to stay at UCLA. Mm -hmm. um, I love it here. Um, you know... What I have been very lucky to do, and this has happened in almost all of the roles I've had, and I'd encourage anybody, especially in the academic side, thinking about Altac, if you go in and you're good and you're honest and you work hard, quite often you can make your, those roles your own. I would be very happy where I'm at now, simply doing more. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to do some of that. But for now, everything's staying constant. I'd be very happy to stay where I'm at. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe expand my role a bit. I love, my heart is really in undergraduate education. Mm -hmm. uh, and let me put a plug in for anybody who's listening to this, who's like, well, what about me? I'm working on my PhD dissertation. What do I do? And, and I talk to my students about this all the time. If the right job comes up, even if you haven't finished your PhD yet, you should jump. You should go. It's particularly if you have an advisor who's supportive and then you figure out a way to finish that PhD while you're on that job. It is possible those things, people are like, oh, no, I need to finish first, and then I'll look for the job. You can do that, but that's usually not the way life works. Yeah. It's really not. And something could pop up, and you're like, that's the perfect job. That's the job where I could do this and do that. 
that's the job. You have to jump. You have to take it when mm -hmm. it's an option, and then you, you figure it out later. Well, and at least in my experience, especially in the academy, the PhD is something that automatically makes you more relatable to faculty. And it makes you, in some ways, less relatable to some staff, mm -hmm. even though they work with faculty all the time. So getting that job as a master's student and getting in there and then getting your PhD, that makes can... you relatable to everyone. And Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What other tips do you have for people applying Altac for admin positions in universities? So what I will say, and UCLA is a large institution, yeah. um, I, think, I think it's always good to be kind and to be friendly and and you need to make that network as a student right so so let's say jordan so you should reach out and have lunches with people and connect with people before you even start applying for absolutely yeah. start local yeah. start with people you know reach out to somebody who's already working at the university have lunch with them or tea or coffee or whatever and and say oh who's looking for stuff what do you think what where could i find a way forward but whom you know is the best because then they'll look out for you in a way too right and yeah. if something comes their way that they think they'll you know forward it to you or something like that it it it, it will seem it will seem like luck mm -hmm. but i can tell you the position i got as a mentor which was how I got which my... Which is a counselor, essentially. Which was a counselor. Yeah. Which was how I got my own funding so I didn't have to rely on TA ships. Mm -hmm. um, was a former PhD student of Villica's. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to run in Bill Gordon, great guy. Mm -hmm. I ran into him one day and talked with him and talked with him about my path and what I was doing. And he was like, oh, you know, I have this... He's like, would you be interested? And I did that. And um, so Jordan will know this and it won't mean anything to our listeners. The first year I did that, I was 75% time because I had full mm -hmm. funding. Yep. Mm -hmm. I had a TA ship and then I did this for 25% mm -hmm. time. Um, and I really liked it. And mm -hmm. then that was something where Pursue it. I went to the department and we talked and I was like, hey, like, I like doing this, but I also know funding's tight. Yeah. Like, if you want me to TA, great. You can do this too. But if you need this other person, this, this covers me. Yeah. It's 50% that covers my fees. And I worked hard there. And then Bill and Corey, when the position came up for the full-time position, were like, you know, you should interview. And then contacted them and said, you should really look at him. Do I think they'd have looked at, you know, somebody, a, a, a white male ABD person to counsel, you know, first-generation underrepresented students? I never would have thought that. Mm. But that got but me in the room. Always, Do you yeah. think that people should go to services? like the professor is in or other places that help you to tailor your materials for an Altac market? No, but, but here's why. And it's going to be so, so if it is free and it is advice, yes. Anytime anyone is commodifying themselves, they're selling a product. And I am always very skeptical of that mm -hmm. um, because I think especially for people who are coming from academia, advertising that, we all started, as we said, as ideally inspired by the educational mission mm -hmm. and wanting to be educators. And I can't tell you, kind of like, I'm sure both of you, like, we get emails, we do public talks for free, we've done stuff at schools. So somebody who sets themselves in that business of, I'm going to charge you, I almost feel like that's further exploitative in this system. It's like saying, we recognize it's bad, but come here and pay me and I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. And whenever I see something like that, I think like, okay, what's your guarantee? Yeah, hey, nothing. And, cause I, and I can tell you at UCLA, again, within this system, and, and Kara knows this as, as, as well as you'd probably, Jordan. Um, I, I can name a hundred different things that when I've seen it, 
I've said, I know that unit and that was made for this person. Mm -hmm. And that's stuff that nobody outside UCLA would know. Right. Yeah. That nobody would know they had this super good... Like that chemistry job that didn't pay anything. That almost yeah. certainly was for a postdoc that was already funded. Yeah. But they had to post it that way. It I'm looks... assuming. I assumed it when I saw it. That's what I assumed too. The language was so careful yes. in saying... But it until you explained pay. it to me, then I was like, ah, but yeah. it got blown up in this whole Because other people want to hate, but I'm yeah. sure that it was tailor-made for somebody who mm -hmm. was already funded, who wanted to teach for a postdoc. Postdocs don't allow you to teach, so they had to create another position yep. so that postdoc could apply for yep. it. Mom was positive that's what that was. I'm no affiliation with chemistry, and that was the that was exactly my read of it. And so when people ask me... You have me, to be in the know to know that. You have right? to be. And, and that's something... So, so somebody who's you know, let's say somebody who was giving advice and it was like, hey, here's how you can tailor it for Can't something. every department either. Yeah, for something that's, that's truly open, sure. But how many targeted searches do we see? Yeah. And, that, and the higher you get, the more that happens. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of have to reach out. Okay, let me ask you one last question and then we're, we'll shut this down. But what should one put on their, it's two questions really. What should one put on their cover letter? for a first job coming in either just before they finish the PhD or just after? How do they sell you so that you look at this and you're like, oh, God damn it, not another failed PhD who's looking to make a shift mm -hmm. who doesn't want the job? How do you, how does one put that in their CV and their cover letter so that they get attention and they're like, oh, you really do want to go in this direction. You seem like you would be interested in this wouldn't be a bad decision. So for me, it gets back to what I think is core of any research and any presentation, which is knowing your audience. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you have to know is, are you applying to faculty or are you applying to staff? And those are two different presentation styles. Um, you both will know this. It, it may not mean anything to our listeners outside of academia. My resume is down to two pages now. Mm -hmm. um, my, my academic my CV, CV is eight. Yeah. My CV is uh, almost 30, I think. God. Yeah. It's insane. I think mine's like five. You don't, yeah, it's fine. So if you're... <laughs> but yeah, resume, I they feel went short. It, I remember my dad, like, <laughs> yeah. being in business, he's like, if it's like, he's like, it's like, you will look at it and you want to, and then it's a yes, no, yes, no, you know? And there's there's little things that you wouldn't think of that, so, so, so odds are, right, very academic style, they're going to put their education first. Don't. Mm -hmm. Don't put your education no. first. Mo put your most, last job. Most staff don't get, they want to see your last job. Mm. If that's a TA ship, you put that. So this is where, what is the job? So if. How so, you describe it, right? So, so going back to Jordan's, right? Well, she would put the Getty. So she would, if she was applying for a contracts and grants administrator, let's say she wanted to work for us, so for mm -hmm. OCGA, our Office mm -hmm. of Contracts and Grants Administration. Putting in there, you know, research assistant at the Getty collaborated on a $2.1 million, yeah. you know, grant from this funding agency. Did but even this? the fact that I'm in the development and uh, internal communications department, yeah, you like highlight that fact. Highlight, over. look at their, those job duties, and that's what you have your mm -hmm. positions do. And then below that, thank you, COVID, because you got transferred I got because transferred. of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then you, and then you know, you go into other things, and then yeah, you absolutely are going to list that education there. But if it's for a staff position, then that's coming towards the end, right? They don't care. It's and it's hard. So even your CV is going to change. Mine is. My, mine is an accomplishment CV now. So I list what my accomplishments were in each role mm -hmm. and my responsibilities. So Maybe know, could we post, not yours, but some version of an accomplishment CV sure, in our Sure, you can post mine if you notes. want. I don't care. I've... And so thinking about the things with that, like one of the things you see on almost every medium to high level position now is ability to convey information in a clear, concise manner to a variety of audiences ability to compose grammatically correct, 
well-written Like you actually documents. write that on your yeah. resume. No, these are written as job duties. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but then do you put that on your resume that you're able to do these things? No, you say, I have done these things. So for me, I put um, prepare white papers, yeah. uh, data analysis, the, and policy recommendations to... The action to, items, right? Like the, yes. things, the products that you've... Yeah. So I would say I, I produce XYZ type of analyses to faculty and high-level administration, allowing them to make informed decisions. What if you have no administrative experience and you've just written your PhD and you're like, what the fuck do I do? So Anybody has administrative experience. Data analysis. Yeah, you managed students. I managed 150 students in yeah. a quarter. If you're teaching at UCLA or Berkeley, yep. what if you're coming from Princeton and you didn't get to TA but one class? So, so again, so if you're coming from that situation, Right, that would be something, and I'm sure that there are people who've done that. I would be, I would be looking internally to try to build that out. Mm. But if you just have those skills, right? What are the public talks you've given? Yeah. What are the things, right? So I highlight, and it's and it's one of the things when I talk about having to present to a wide variety of audiences. That's why I do have, you know, still in my CV, selected conference talks and public talks, mm -hmm. so they can see I can do both. I can communicate. Yeah, I can communicate. To a larger group of people. Um, that you know, to me. Right. If you're looking for higher level is going to mean far more than like the people who put in the standard, you know, familiar with Word, Excel, PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> um, so but those are other things depending on what you did. Right. Like what type of data analysis tools did you use? What are you familiar with? Like mm -hmm. That can be put in there. So it's it's thinking about all of those skills that you took out of it. And most of those, I think, are about communication. Mm -hmm. um, if you did field work. Did mm -hmm. you work as a team? Mm -hmm. What responsibilities did you have? Mm -hmm. All of those, I think, are things that you can sell. And, you know, I also think that um, to, like, go to, like, the Brene Brown of it all, I think you have to make yourself vulnerable. And I, you know, if I apply for a position and I don't get it, I will reach out and say, like, thank you so much for taking the time. First off, pet peeve. Maybe Remy knows this too, looking at people. Amazes me how many people don't send thank you letters anymore. Oh, I always send a thank you letter. You always should send a thank you email. And I even I remember applying for like jobs in high school. And you send a thank you letter. My parents were like, always send the thank you email after. Always. Before so before COVID at UCLA when I would apply for things, um, handwritten thank you notes. I would drop them off. Mm. Oh, notes, yeah. Um, and within each note, I would cite something to the interviewer that they said to me in the interview so they knew it wasn't generic. Yeah. So it would be like, Kara, I really enjoyed getting to connect with you and talking about coffins. coffins. Um, so that they knew this wasn't pre-written, it was individualized. So, so those type of, I think, what people call soft skills, I think are actually essential skills. And demonstrating those, um, making those connections, getting that feedback is something that's important. And it, and it could be something where you know, if you're if you're having luck and people are like, keep telling you you're just too qualified, does it hurt? Yeah, you might have to drop that PhD. From your resume. Maybe. Yeah. She'll tell about just it. don't put it on there. Just don't put it on there. Yeah. You know? You know, you might have to. But again, ideally, you know, I think, you know, when you're in a university setting, there's pretty much every opportunity there. Whether it's student services like I started off, whether it's contracts and grants, whether it's admissions, whether it's development. Those are things, I mean, development officers, like I'm sure like Jordan, Kara, like would love you folks to go and be like, hey, can you mention us on your podcast? Can you talk about, can you invite them to humanities? Can you come talk to donors? Like yeah. that type of engagement, um, you know, to see kind of where their money's going. Can I ask you one more question? Sure. So if, if somebody's trying to game this and they're moving from the PhD to administration, should they 
be picky and wait with their PhD for something that's higher level, or should they go entry level and try to game the system from that direction? I think, um, you know, for me, I would say you kind of get in. Get the entry level. That's what I would say too. But for our, for our PhDs who are like, what do I do? What is this? They should apply for something entry level. And what kinds of things will one see when they're going to the university website, whether it's NYU or UCLA or Spokane, Washington, whatever, what kinds of job, like analysts, what kinds of things should they What's look the for? Titles, yeah. What kinds of titles? So, so depending on what they're drawn to, um, easy things that are, are, that are for people who like teaching, student services mm -hmm. are usually good draws. Those are usually gonna be things like academic advising, academic counseling, those are student facing. You sell yourself as having been in the classroom, you're used to working with students, you're used to working with faculty. That right there is half the job, yeah. right? The behind the scenes, learning the policy, learning their specific degree requirements, that's, that's easy. And mm -hmm. you can show you know that because you know how to do research. If you, if you kind of like the more analytical work, looking at administrative analysts, um, that could be at their academic senate. Um, that could be within, uh, in our structure, it's vice chancellors. They tend to do the more administrative side. So maybe you go for some place like planning and budget because you came in. Again, you're used to working with faculty, so you can code switch, but you're used to working with contracts and grants. You have some familiar expertise. You get in there at a lower level. And then, you know, you might, you know, after two, three years, you get your own portfolio. You're maybe looking at a school now where you're doing budget analyses for a school. Um, all of those things, I think you can grow. You go in and learn. Um, and like we said, when it comes to the adjunct role, you time it. You know, if you go in, if you go into like what's a, a administrative assistant secretary type role, and you say, okay, I want to see how this works out. I'm going to give it two years. It's got a good base pay. You know, um, not what I'd like to make, but something to live off of. It has benefits. Um, and then I'll see what's next. And then you go in there. And this is the thing about universities, um, at least with ours. And I think it's the true with many. Mm -hmm. um, we're cannibalistic <laughs> because somebody who goes in. So, so my department's quite large. Kara's is medium size mm -hmm. and they're small. We're growing. You are growing. But that what that means is somebody who comes in and goes to a small department with five or six faculty, and yes, we have those. Yeah, we do. They go there, and that department takes someone entry level, and they learn our academic personnel. They learn everything. They learn everything. They everything. And then they get poached. Mm -hmm. And then you go to, to med middle, medium-sized department, and you say, I can do what I'm doing now for you. Mm -hmm. You don't have to train. I'm plug and play. And Kara says, that's great. And you go there, and you get 10, 15, 20%, and you're there, and you get more experience. And then after you go to that medium-sized department, you go to a large department. Yeah. And then from that large department, you go and back. And then you become more specialized as you go. You can, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you go to that, from that large department, you then maybe go back to a medium-sized department, but you're a supervisor. A but starting at the small department, you'll learn what you like better. Do yeah. you like the academic personnel work better than the student advising work, better than the budgets and planning work? Yeah. And you'll have a better idea of what's going on. The yeah. hummingbird just was like over your shoulder. Oh, <laughs> it's a good sign. <laughs> and the mm -hmm. only thing you need to be careful of, at least in our system, mm -hmm. um, is, is, you know, we joke about it, but there are golden handcuffs. Yeah. Because, and that's where you have to be but honest with golden. yourself. Yeah. They are. Hey. <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's, it's, I'm obviously fine with it, but if you're that person who always thinks you're going to you're doing your research on the side and you're gonna get that position, you're gonna get to the point where you're like me, where 10 years in, even if I could get that position, do I want, the, the, do I want to take a pay cut yeah. to go spend five years working my butt off to get tenure mm -hmm. 
to then spend another three, four to try to get to full. Yeah, is it really mm -hmm. worth it? To then be making more than I'm making now, yeah. which would probably be less than I'd be making if I stayed in this role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I'm happy with that for my students, you know, for them to be so happy in their staff positions that they don't want to leave to the academic world. Mm -hmm. It's up to higher education to make teaching valuable again and to make tenure track teaching the norm rather than the exception. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's a Hunger Games dog-eat-dog -dog world yeah. where very few people get those positions. This will have to change, but it's going to be a fire that we have to go through in the next 20 years, and it's going to be brutal. And I don't know how it's going to work out because I think, yeah. I think again, I like looking at trends. And the demographics are against us. Yes, they are. There's going to be fewer students and fewer students yeah. and fewer students. And it's, um, it's, and it's not just, oh, yeah, there, there are few, fewer students born between 2007 and 2010. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a demographic crash that's going to take out the United States, particularly as we refuse immigration on the whole, which we are doing. And it's a brutal, it's, a, it's, a, it's awful what we're facing. And what people don't realize about the economics of higher education Will we be impacted by that at UCLA? Mm -hmm. There are literally tens of thousands of students who want every spot that's turned down. So yes. no, at least not for no. decades. Not by the not by not before we're retired. Yeah. So um, will the Loyola's and Chapman universities be affected? Yes. And, and this is what most people don't realize when they talk about elite institutions and liberalism in this country. Most institutions are non-selective. Many of those are religious based. Yeah. And these are the ones where they're literally and have been since 2008, nine closing down entire departments. Yeah. And I'm not talking about Trump universities and I'm mm -hmm. not talking about DeVry's for profits. I'm talking about actual state institutions and, and, you know, biblical colleges that can't support that. Mm -hmm. And the question that I think is interesting in how it will impact us downstream is what, how does that market look when you then flood an already flooded market? Yeah with people who were tenure track. Yeah. Um, does it become a case where, like, do faculty unionize? I mean, are, are what we call them Unit 18 lectures, that's their collective bargaining agreement, our lecturers are unionized. Um, and is that something where, you know, that union, like, does it get contentious? Do they keep giving them, you know, what we think are not good wages? Um, does the unit, do we eventually get to a point where the university starts to hire more professors, but they're what we at UCLA called lectures teaching with professor. security of employment or yeah. teaching professors. Yeah. So Kara comes in and she teaches more than this, but in theory, Kara should be teaching about four classes a year because she should be doing research. Mm -hmm. yeah. Our lectures of security of employment, they have those teaching five, maybe six. They teach closer to a CSU load. Um, it's basically, um, you know, again, we're a quarter system. So that would be like a three, three. Yeah. In, in a, in a semester system, but maybe they have them come on teaching a four, four and a five, five. Mm -hmm. And they're technically faculty and tenure track. Um, but they're only teaching, but they're doing that. And, and then the real danger with that, cause I've seen this other places is that then becomes a two tiered system where they're like, Oh, Jordan, you want to have a baby? That's great. Maybe you should be a teaching professor instead of a research professor. Mm -hmm. Cause you don't have the time to focus. And you're like, well, that's still a secure job. I'll take yeah. it. But then it's a, now a two-tiered system the same way we had it with lectures. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing all of these things shake out as the boomers retire. This is happening now within the next 10 years. And it's going to create another shift, a demographic shift of the academics who are running these different universities. But I guess the final bit of advice I would say is to all those thinking of entering staff administration, administrative positions at higher ed is to look to the public universities first. Those are the places that I think are going to last. I mean, yeah, yeah if you live next door to Harvard, yeah. sure, you go ahead and go yeah. there or a Harvard-like place, no problem. But 
if you're if you're looking go to those public universities those those are going to be able to to fund themselves yeah. and keep things going that's where as we contract those places will get i assume get more funding as time goes on well and also looking at like what like we were saying about those skills that are transferable so if if, if some if ucla closed tomorrow you know I can go look. I, every time I see them, like they advertise locally, like go in and out. Like those managers make more than I do, yeah. but I can go there and say, "Hey, I've got, mm-hmm. I've managed twenty staff. My my annual Google operating budget's about about five million dollars. Get all the burgers you can eat. It works, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, but these are things where you can try to sell those skills elsewhere. Yeah. You have options. Though. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, on that note, yes. Thank you for um, Eric. Thank us. you. This has Very been super cool. helpful. Yeah, it's super yeah. fun. Yeah, I think yeah. you have so much advice for so many different people, and mm-hmm. we're we're grateful. This was this was super fun. You're very we're very, welcome, yeah. we're very pleased to have had you on the podcast. Um, the podcast that is called After Lives with Kara Cooney. Yes. And and here's Jordan, you know, my sidekick, and um, me. or the one who actually runs the damn <laughs> podcast. So um, and Eric and Eric, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you both. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with others and leave us a five-star review. Send us your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the show notes in the podcast section of my website, karakuniegyptologist.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books and upcoming lectures. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter to keep up on the latest news and content from me. Check out the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off by subscribing to our Substack After Lives After Party. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. See you next time on After Lives with Kara Cooney.